Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're dipping into one of the great debates of our time, the generation gap. Is there a war between the generations in Australia? Are the baby boomers really the luckiest generation in history, swimming in money but making life harder for their children and now their grandchildren? Are the millennials the laziest and most pampered of all the generations, seething about the baby boomers as they brunch on their smashed avocado and cafe latte? Well, to inject a few facts and a bit of evidence into the heated rhetoric about generational warfare, I'm joined by not one, not two, but three Grattan gurus. Firstly, the director of our budget policy program, Danielle Wood. Danny, welcome to you. Thank you. We're also joined by Grattan senior associate, Kate Griffiths. G'day, Kate. Thanks, Paul. And finally, we're joined by Grattan associate, Owen Emsley. Owen, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. Now, Danny, Kate and Owen have just released a fascinating new report called, appropriately enough, Generation Gap. Danny, what prompted you to do this report? We looked at this issue back in 2014 and released a report called Wealth of Generations, which showed that younger generations seem to be falling behind, particularly in terms of their accumulation of of wealth. And since then, there's been a lot of new data that's come out. Um, We thought it was interesting to look at the issue again. Um, I'm sure everyone will remember it featured pretty prominently in the 2019 election. Um, There was a lot of debate around franking credits and other tax benefits going to older Australians. Some people were calling the election a generational war. Um, So we thought it was really quite timely to look at this issue of disparity in economic um, conditions and living standards across generations once again. So you've had a look. What have you found? Well, what we found is... On the wealth picture, it's essentially a continuation of what we found back in 2014, which is there is a a rising gap between older and younger households in terms of their wealth. Um, So older households have been accumulating wealth um, very quickly and are substantially better off than households of the same age 30 years ago. For younger households, that's less true. And particularly the past sort of 10 or 15 years, um, the wealth of younger households has stagnated. And in this report, we find that's particularly true for the young and the poor. Um, If we compare poor young people today to poor young people 15 years ago, they've actually gone backwards in that time. So you've you've got a secondary title on the report, which I think goes to what you've just just said, restoring the fair go for younger Australians. What what exactly are you getting at there? Uh, What we're talking about is restoring the economic opportunities. So that's partly about wealth accumulation. It's partly about incomes. Um, And that's something that really has changed since we looked at this issue back in 2014. We now see, um, since we've had about wage stagnation for the last five years or so, that's particularly impacted young people. They're less likely to have other sources of income to rely on. So when wages don't move, that's particularly hurting young households. And the other aspect of the fair go is the one that I just sort of pointed to around the election. It's around the future budget pressures coming down the line from an ageing population. That might not be biting now, But what it does mean is as the population ages, we know that will put pressure on the budget bottom line and younger people will ultimately pick up the tab, whether that's in terms of higher taxes or lower services. If we don't move now, then there's going to be a fiscal squeeze facing them into the future. So you use a very interesting phrase in the report, the generational bargain. Tell us what 
is the generational bargain and why do you say that it's under increasing strain in Australia at the moment? Well, the generational bargain I think of as a long-standing practice in Australia if we're talking about government finances. And it's really this idea that when you're of working age as a group, um, you're net contributors to the budget, you pay more in taxes than you get out in terms of services, and you do that partly to support older Australians in their retirement in the hope that when your generation reaches retirement age, the, the next generation of working Australians will do, will do the same. Um, and that really, as I said, has been long-standing practice in this country ever since we've had um, a, you know, a proper pension system in place. The reason I say it's under strain is, first of all, we know there's a substantial demographic shift underway. So there will be um, a lot more Australians over 65 than we've ever seen before. But the ratio of people of working age to support them is going to be falling. Um, that's partly because the baby boom cohort is big um, and they're now moving into retirement age. Uh, and it's partly because we're living longer, uh, which is a great thing but it does raise some challenges for the budget. At the same time, we've really um, supercharged those demographic pressures by increasing the transfers going to older households. So not only are those demographic challenges there, we've exacerbated them through a series of government policy decisions, and that is going to make um, budgets increasingly tight and that will fall on, on today's young people and their children. Okay, so I'll come back to you later, Danny, about what might be done about that problem and whether governments can help solve it. But can I bring you in here, Kate? You've looked closely at the wealth gap in particular between the generations. What have you found there? Yeah, so when we talk about the wealth gap, um, of course we expect older households to be wealthier than younger households um, because they've had more time to accumulate wealth. That's going to be true on average. But the gap between old and young has got a lot bigger. So in the early 1990s, the average older household had two and a half times the wealth of the average younger household, and now it's four times. So the wealth of older Australians is growing just much faster than the wealth of younger Australians. So what we saw, say, in 1994, so in the early 90s, was that a household headed by someone aged 65 to 74 had wealth of around 530000 net wealth. Now that same household or the household of the same age uh, has wealth of around 1.3 million. So it's a massive rise in wealth for those households over the past two decades. But when we look at younger households over the exact same period, we see that a household headed by someone aged 25 to 34 has gone from around 190,000 in net assets in 1994 to 300,000 today. So it's a much smaller rise in wealth that we see there. And uh, a big part of that is the housing boom. I mean, over the past two decades, uh, we know house prices have gone up dramatically. They've gone up much faster than incomes have. And if you owned a home before 2000, you really benefited from that boom. And if you are now today uh, trying to break into the housing market at the other end of the boom, you're facing much higher barriers to, um, to entry to ownership, particularly the deposit. But Kate, I want to challenge you on this idea that the baby boomers had it good because they were the big winners from the property boom. The baby boomers also copped record high interest rates. I seem to remember they're up around 17%. Isn't that a factor? True. And it would have been a pretty scary time to be purchasing a home in the 1980s with those sorts of interest rates. Now, the difference between the interest rates then and the interest rates now are, are dramatic, um, as are the prices. And those two things might kind of even out. But really, the big difference for young people today is the deposit. 
getting a 20% deposit together on the house prices that exist today is just a huge hurdle. It just means that young people have to save for a much longer before they can enter the market. Okay, so saving for a deposit obviously depends upon income. Tell us what you found about the generational gap, if there is such a thing, with regard to incomes in Australia. You're spot on, Paul, and that's part of how these effects compound. So since the GFC, we've seen um, wage stagnation across all ages. But for young people, wages is their primary income, whereas for older people, often they've got other sources of income, superannuation, um, pension income, etc. So they've actually got other options, whereas for young people, it's all about wages. And if you were born in um, the 1980s or 90s, millennial, Gen Z, you'd be entering the workforce around the time of the global financial crisis. And it's just, you know, a really tricky employment market, particularly for young people. So we've seen rising unemployment, rising underemployment in Australia, particularly underemployment is huge for 15 to 24 year olds. And uh, that means that people are willing and available for more work. They can't find the extra hours. A lot of them are studying. So that's a good sign, you know, more people in study that could improve their incomes in the future. But we have also seen that the premium that young people gain from study has also gone backwards in the, in the past decades. They may not get the same dividend that previous generations have got from higher education. Now, Owen, I'll come to you soon, but uh, Danny, can I, can I put another a popular view to you? Isn't this all about younger people being more flamboyant with their money and spending it on all sorts of things that their parents never dreamed of? I do wonder if um, every generation has faced that that same criticism. It just happens to be avocado brunches this time around. But I wonder the baby boomers probably copped it for something they were spending too. Um, the data absolutely does not bear that out. Um, so younger people today are spending a bit more, somewhere between sort of 10 and 30% more than people under 35 did 30 years ago. Uh, but when we look at what they're spending it on, it's largely what we'd classify as essentials, particularly housing. The price of housing has risen substantially during that time. They're spending less overall on discretionary items, less on alcohol, less on clothing, less on furniture. Um, so this is not a spendthrift generation. They are spending, um, they're actually saving more than, than previous groups did at the same age. And to the extent they're spending more, it's on necessities. Nice to put some myths to bed, isn't it? So, Owen, I've left the best till last because you've done some fascinating work in this report on inheritances. So, firstly, tell us where you went looking to find out more about inheritances in Australia. So, one of the things with inheritances is that there's not a lot of publicly accessible information on the size or amount or number of inheritances you have to make a little bit of effort to, to find out. And what we did was look at probate files. Now, when someone dies and they have a, a reasonably significant amount over about $10,000 or so to bequeath, it is necessary for the, um, the courts to grant probate, which basically is confirming that the executor of the will has, has presented themselves They've found the most recent copy of the will and everything's as it should be and the executor can then gain access to the deceased's money and, and assets. And having granted probate, that pro, the, there's a file that is kept on file at the archive centre um, separately in each state. There's a, a similar kind of archive centre where these things are kept. And 
they are publicly available, not in any kind of uh, compiled data set, but the individual files are available. So one can uh, one can send send an intern down down there to take photographs of a whole lot of sheets of paper, which we can then um, read and get some information from about inheritances. The information they have is, among other things, they have the age of the deceased, the value of the estate, and that's listed in, in, in a reasonable amount of detail. For individual items, we can see real estate versus um, bank accounts, shares, vehicles, um, an aged care bond is often one of the assets. and. Also on there is the will, so we can read the will to decipher the legalese about who's getting what amount and what item from the from the estate. And it also contains the death certificate, which has the handy piece of information, which is the age of all children of the deceased, which is quite handy because for, for our purposes because the majority of uh, of estate money tends to go to the children of the deceased, so it means for the bulk of the money we can see the age of the person receiving it. Okay, so we've finally found out where you've been for the last few months, <laughs> Owen. What have you found whilst burrowing down all those uh, tunnels? So firstly, we found that inheritances are pretty large, which shouldn't surprise anyone. The The average estate now in Victoria is around $500,000 in value, and there's a bit of a spread. 20% are over a million and around 7% are over 2 million. And where does the money go? About 70, about three quarters of the money goes to children of the deceased. And then around 20% goes to other relatives and small amounts, about 4% goes to other people, probably friends in most cases. And only around 2% goes to charities. You've just mentioned that most inheritances go to children. We're talking about the generation gap here. Aren't inheritances the solution, Danny? That is, by definition, this is wealth being passed from the older to the younger. And that's exactly what people often raise with us. They say, you know, don't don't inheritances fix this problem? And to some extent, they do on average. Um, so to the extent we've got this big pot of wealth sitting with baby boomers, um, we expect that a lot of it will be passed down. But what we know from, from Owen and the intern's fantastic work is that um, inheritances will generally be passed on later in life. So the, the most common time to receive inheritance is, is 50 to 59. We can expect that that's only going to get higher with, with rising life expectancy. So that money's not coming to younger people at the point in their lives where perhaps they're most going to benefit from it when they're trying to get into the housing market, when they've got a young family. The other thing we know is that inheritances tend to go to those that are already wealthy. So wealthy parents are much more likely to have wealthy children, so inheritances concentrate wealth. So as that big um, pot of wealth is being passed down, I think what we can expect to see as a society is a big increase in wealth inequality as a result of that. So yes, it might deal with the problem for some people, but there are a lot of people that aren't going to benefit from these inheritances. Okay, and Danny, you talk in the report about tax policy making a lot of these problems worse. What do you mean by that? Exactly how does tax policy uh, create more of this divide? Well, there's a number of government policies that, you know, I think you can argue boost inheritances. Um, if we look at superannuation tax concessions, uh, we give very generous tax concessions for those types of long-term savings. 
the idea being that we want people to have a uh, you know, good standard of living in retirement and to take the pressure off the age pension system. What we see in reality is that most people actually do not draw down on their assets in retirement. Most retirees are net savers. So we're giving these generous tax concessions to, to help people have a standard of living. Instead, a lot of that money, all of that money is being passed on to the next generation. The government has some processes in place to try and claw some of that back um, to say, well, you know, you've, we've been giving these tax concessions to save for your retirement. If you're not going to, uh, if you're going to pass that on, some of that comes back to the government, but nowhere near enough to get back the full value of those tax concessions. And there's various ways accountants and financial advisors can get around that. Um, so that's an issue. Um, second of all, I would say the fact that the family home is largely excluded from the age pension asset test also means that um, taxpayers spend considerable money funding pensions for people that will later pass on substantial wealth to their children. Um, so there is an argument that the, the family home should be treated more consistently with other forms of wealth. It should go into the asset test. Uh, of course, you don't want people forced to move out of their home if they don't want to. Um, so essentially they can take out a loan from the government. Um, they get that pension payment just as they would, um, just as they would now but when they pass on and that estate is being passed down, that money comes back out of the estate. People will still be passing on wealth to their children, but they will be using some of that wealth to help fund themselves in retirement. Okay, so let's move into this um, area of what should governments do to help overcome, at least help overcome this problem. You've just touched on some things, Danny, but what other recommendations are in this report that would produce a fairer Australia, particularly for the young? Well, the number one thing that governments can do to raise living standards for young people is to boost economic growth. It sounds trite, but it's absolutely true. If, you know, if we increase growth, increase wages, that is going to protect the living standards and make sure that our children have a better standard of living than what, than what we do. Um, there is a huge number of suggestions on the table about how you do that. Um, Grattan's been very active in many of these debates. Um, tax reform, um, improving the way we deliver education, um, spending smarter on infrastructure. Um, it might not mean spending more, but doing it on better projects. All of those things will help lift productivity, which lifts economic growth and living standards, and that particularly benefits young people. Might jump in there. Kate, please. Participation is also a big part of the story. So increasing the share of the working age population that's in the workforce is really important. And Grattan's done some previous work looking at where maybe the potential biggest bang for buck for government in this space is. And, and it's around older people in the workforce and it's around women in the workforce, particularly second earners. But women are in the workforce these days. This is surely a generation where women expect and do go to work. Absolutely. And a lot of them then go part time after having children. So some of it will be about um, helping women working part time increase their hours, not necessarily whether they're in or out of the workforce, but in increasing their workforce participation. Um, and we can see there's a big drop off in workforce participation over the age of about uh, 55. So for men and women alike. So keeping older people in the workforce too, um, or giving them the choice to stay in the workforce by reducing barriers that are, that exist there is a big part of the story. What sort of barriers, what might we do, what might government do to send the message that older people are welcome and valuable in the workplace? Because I think that perhaps 
a message that our society sends at the moment is the opposite. Yeah, it's certainly one of the concerns that um, older workers raise and they say it's one of the barriers, the biggest barriers they face, age discrimination in the workforce. But look, I think a big part of it is societal expectations and where the retirement age sits is a big part of where society expects people to exit the workforce. Uh, So lifting the retirement age over time would likely have a big effect on older workforce participation. We've seen that in the past as well when the retirement age for women was increased from 60 to 65. There was a big boost in older women's workforce participation. So we've seen that going up steadily for a good period now as a result of those reforms in the 90s. What other recommendations, what other policies might help here, Kate? Look, I mean, housing affordability is a big part of this story. The wealth gap is largely a a gap in housing opportunities. So changes to planning rules to encourage higher density living in established city suburbs would make a big difference to the affordability of housing for young people. And another part of it is just that we need to be kind of sharing the burden more so that we know that a growing tax burden is heading the way of young people. Um, Danny's explained the demographic challenges, there's already the economic challenges and there's tax policy choices we've made. So unwinding some of the tax policy choices that we have made over the past decades that give um, a boost to people over 65, whatever their income, would make a big difference because at the moment, older Australians on the same income as younger Australians pay a lot less tax. And to Kate's point, these age-based tax breaks, franking credit refunds, tax-free superannuation, senior and pensions tax offset, these are going to comfortably off older Australians. We have a pension system which supports, um, you know, the big share of older Australians that are not doing well, and we're absolutely supporting that to continue. So let's be clear, Danny, you are asking comfortably off older Australians to make, if you like, a a sacrifice for the greater good and for the good of their children and grandchildren. That's exactly right. I mean, a lot of these tax breaks are unprecedented. Older Australians are paying about the same amount of income tax now that older Australians did 20 years ago, despite the fact then they had much lower levels of income and wealth. Um, So that has been a, a big shift in the tax system. Age is actually now almost as important in determining how much tax people pay as income. And that's what we think cannot be sustained. Danny, we've touched on a few areas there that are um, easy to say, politically extremely difficult to do. Should we have any confidence that governments these days will have the courage to tackle these sorts of policy reforms? I like to be optimistic, so I hope there is a chance. And, you know, part of what we're doing in this report is actually trying to put what what we certainly think is compelling evidence that there is a need for action. Um, I think, you know, that idea of leaving a legacy of children not better off than their parents is not one that that anyone's going to feel very comfortable with. Um, You know, by our nature, we want to leave the world a better place for our children. Um, So I'm hoping that that is enough to compel action. I agree that any of these policies are individually challenging, but we are hoping to appeal to the the angels of people's better nature um, and make the case that, you know, these things will need to happen. So you're an optimist or you're trying hard to be optimistic, Danny. Let me ask in, in summing up, tell me this, are the different generations in Australia inevitably going to be going to war? on these issues of wealth, 
income prosperity? Is this something we just have to get used to? I don't think it's inevitable. Um, you know, in the past, this is not how it's been. Um, yes, we've had this generational bargain. It's been sustainable. We've seen generation after generation supporting the older group in retirement, but not to the extent that we currently do. So yes, for young people to gain on the budget front will require some rebalancing of the settings, which means that some well-off older people would lose some of the tax benefits that they currently have. Um, so in that sense, there is uh, an inherent tension there. But as I said, I think that people can be convinced that that's the right answer. Well, thank you, Danny, Kate and Owen for your expertise and your insights today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, read the Generation Gap Report, or indeed dip into any of Grattan's reports and articles, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.